0: Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about burn pits. Our guest, Kali Rubai, is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, researching the environmental health impacts of war. She did research among farmers in Anbar, Iraq in 2014 and 2015, documenting the environmental effects of the 2003 U.S. occupation. She is currently in Fallujah, Iraq, conducting research on the epidemic of birth defects in that region. Callie Rubai, welcome to Talk World Radio.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So so to begin, I, I was absolutely shocked uh, to hear President Joe Biden finally admit publicly and say it in a State of the Union address, no less, that his son was probably killed by burn pits in a war that he pretty much led the effort to, to start in the U.S. Senate. Uh, wh- what did you make of that?
1: Yeah, um, it's really uh, striking to me that in the uh, approaching the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, there are many people who are starting to come forward and reconcile a bit with the long term effects of that occupation.
0: And, and, And was it as shocking to you as to me that someone who would say that? would nonetheless go on pushing for more militarism uh, and that nobody was bothered whatsoever? Is is war that normalized, that there's no possibility of even thinking anything else?
1: It seems like one of the ways the environment gets invoked in uh, discussions about militarism is to naturalize and diffuse its effects. So no, it doesn't surprise me um, in part because I think this is seen as one of the sacrificial components of a necessary war rather than as it should be seen, which is a core long-term impact of war that tells us all war is much more costly than we can ever afford to clean up.
0: And, and uh, not just Joe Biden, but somebody named John Stewart. Uh, I haven't seen it, but you've told me that Jon Stewart said something about burn pits. What did he say?
1: He drew attention to burn pits as a major health issue and was pushing for policy change on a talk show, an evening talk show a couple of months ago. Um, This has really instigated a focus mainly on veteran exposure, um, which has galvanized some movement forward. U.S. veterans have been pushing for recognition for a long time.
0: Yeah, some of them on this program, uh, but of course, when they wage these wars in somebody else's country uh, and damage themselves, damage the US military members themselves, uh, what about the people who live there uh, and have to go on living there? Uh, Are they not hurt by uh, by this toxic poisoning of the air and the land and the water as well?
1: No, of course they are. The health effects of burn pits on veterans is based on acute short-term exposure at a very specific age among mostly majority healthy males. And with the rocky exposure to burn pits, it's about diffuse long-term exposure for all ages, from fetal development, childhood exposure, men and women, and even the elderly. Um, Dr. Mozgan Sabavas sorry, I mispronounced her name, Sava Biaspanahi recently published an epidemiological finding that showed that living in a proximity to a US military base in Iraq is linked with a higher chance of developing cancer or having a child with a birth defect. And that's probably related to the burn pits that are inside of those bases. But of course, we also know from research in other countries, living near a military base in general decreases the overall health of any population. So we know burn pits, burned everything from computers and tires to uniforms and books, and somewhere as big as football fields, and they were releasing smoke and fumes in the air for 24 hours a day, years at a time. And that air was filled with particulate matter from these burn pits that reached for miles far beyond the base themselves. And inevitably the health impacts are multiple and enduring. So anyone who's smelled burning plastic or a burning car knows from their own physical reaction that these fumes are toxic. The current condition of burn pits and the former burn pits is really unknown. That's something I'm investigating now. So um, when the US withdrew withdrew in 2011, 2012 from a lot of bases, they transferred those to the Iraqi army and some burn pits were buried at that time. And then others remained active and then some may remain active today. And then there were other smaller burn pits around uh, urban areas that, were probably converted into municipal dumps where trash is still burned. So while burning civilian trash is probably not the healthy, it's, it's definitely not inducing the same kind of health risk as burning the military waste that was happening a decade ago.
0: And some may still be being burned by the US or by the Iraqi military
1: probably by the Iraqi military. So a lot of the bases that we drive by here are now operated by the Iraqi government and it's unclear what's going on inside.
0: And and those that are buried, uh, is that a good cleanup? What does that do to the land and the water long-term?
1: Nobody knows. I think the air pollution is of course the most acute, but the long-term consequences of what it means to have that kind of waste seeping into the ground um, I don't think anyone will really know the long-term effects, especially if some of those materials are heavy metals.
0: And, and what is the general awareness uh, of this topic? In, in, I mean, you have disease pandemics, people must notice. What, what is the, the understanding in the general population and in the government in Iraq?
1: It's a really good question, because uh, outside of areas where there are immediate burn pits, I was surprised how little people were talking about them. Among those who live really close to where burn pits were, there's active awareness of their health impacts. So, for example, I interviewed a man who lived just a few kilometers from the Balad air base in Yathrib, and he described seeing and breathing all these different colors of smoke for years, especially right as the U.S. was about to withdraw. And in fact, the burn pit had created its own kind of weather. So it was producing this haze that made the sky yellow or gray or white, depending on what they were burning. And he noticed that it made his cattle sick. And to this day, a decade later, both his chickens and his cows are still getting sick. Some are born with missing limbs and others have difficulty walking straight. And he told me that he brings in healthy animals from outside rather than breeding his own. And just within a few weeks from eating the plants there, he notices they become ill. And he used to have over 50 cattle. Now he just keeps three because he can't really afford to invest in animals he knows are going to die. When I was talking to him, he led me out and I met the the heifer that he has right now. And it had just given birth to a calf with no legs last year. And then others who live near the burn pits told stories of children who were born with neurological problems, had difficulty walking or balancing, and then others reported a high rate of brain cancer. But then away from the bases, uh, many Iraqis don't focus on burn pits as a major unit of analysis. And that's because they're just one vector for so many other forms of toxic exposure that Iraqis are continuing to face. Military occupations are inevitably going to cause a cascade of environmental health disasters with or without burn pits. And so while the burn pits are a figure of chemical harm, mostly in the veteran experience, they are useful indexes for a much wider range of environmental disasters that Iraqis are enduring. Um, And I say cascade because some of those environmental disasters are increasing over time rather than dissipating.
0: What are some of those beyond uh, the burn pit poisoning?
1: Sure, uh, we can start with the air and work our way down. Um, Yeah, Iraqi cities have seen heavy military bombardment and repeated battles that couldn't possibly not cause long-term health effects. Uh, Think about it this way. If a missile strikes a building, just one building, you have to ask what happens to that building and the missile fragments. It all has to go somewhere. Right? So it might sit there broken and decaying on the land, but even if it's cleaned up, where does all that material go? And then what happens to the air? And where does that air travel on the wind? And then what happens to the water nearby, the people who breathe the air? And this, of course, happened over and over. In 2004, 74% of Fallujah was destroyed. That's a lot of detritus of war. And that's a lot of air pollution, not just in the moment of battle. So those weapons and their destroyed material stay on the land and they fly around in the air forever. And air pollution is a huge problem in Iraqi cities. The air carries debris from burn pits, yes, but also all other sources of heavy metals and dioxin and other toxins. And if we look at the soil, Iraq's soil was also impacted, um, although in a more policy way. The displacement of farmers induced local climate change in a really devastating way. So when farmers fled, especially in 2014, when I was working with them, but also in 2004, they had to abandon their crops. And that led to drought in areas that were left uncultivated. So now it's a lot dustier and difficult to rehabilitate the soil's uh, microbial richness and moisture because the irrigation systems were broken. And then at the same time, government subsidies for farmers have disappeared. And that minimizes the economic support that farmers have to grow their crops. So this has completely changed the landscape in a way that may or may not have been anticipated, but it did restructure the ecology of Iraq. And then finally, the water, which is, um, you know, Iraq's twin rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates are the veins of this country. People need the rivers to survive. The crops aren't fed by rain here, they're fed by irrigation, and people eat fish from the rivers, especially in the south. So um, you know, people I met in rural areas talk about how they used to drink water directly from the river, and then after U.S. occupation, it started to become cloudier, taste bad, and made people sicker. So now they use a filtration system. The fish are less healthy, and this isn't only because of kinetic battles, but because of how policy was written in to deregulate extractive industries. So the rivers have become waste dumping grounds, just as the air was a waste dumping ground through the burn pits in 2018. 100,000 people in Basra ended up in the hospital because of the poor water quality. And this is why groups like Iraq's River Protectors, which is a grassroots activist organization is working really hard to educate people about the rivers here and try and regulate the pollution. So if you pull all this together, the air, soil and water, it becomes apparent that war is this major catalyst for climate change in Iraq. Uh, The scholar Bridget Gawashi argues that war is a climatological event. And in Iraq, I think that's really true. And burn pits are definitely part of that story. And they help us see how war can be climatological.
0: And, and on a global scale as well, militarism is a significant contributor to, uh, to greenhouse gases, even though it's left out of the treaties and, uh, and policies of the governments, right?
1: That's right. If you stopped using any kind of fossil fuel in the domestic sphere, the U.S. military alone would continue to drive us to the brink.
0: And and has the U.S. military notified U.S. military veterans uh, who've been exposed to burn pits of the danger of what they should do to to check their health? Uh, Has the U.S. or Iraqi government notified Iraqis who live near? Burn pits, or where there were burn pits, and offered any sort of uh, advice whatsoever.
1: I don't know if the military has warned uh, the veterans. Although veterans that I know and work with certainly haven't articulated that, and, and many are surprised to hear that maybe there is some recourse they could seek. Um, certainly, that hasn't been the case for Iraqis, and um, and that's to be expected when you go to war with people. Um, not killing them is a little bit of an irony. You can't have green militarism in Iraq.
0: Yeah. Do you do you think, I don't know how much you've seen in Iraq and what it's been like there, the incredible media coverage of a war in Ukraine, uh, treating victims of war as if they were human beings, uh, as if it mattered that people were victimized by war. Do you think if there had ever been that sort of media coverage of the war on Iraq, that things might be different, that there might be some interest in the United States cleaning up the burn pits, apologizing for the burn pits, making reparations, that there might be criminal prosecutions uh, for the people responsible.
1: It's possible. Um, The war in Iraq was so heavily a war for profit from the very beginning. I'm not sure that the structural motives are there, but certainly the dehumanization of Iraqis is palpable in their telling of memories of U.S. US veterans and their lives. A lot of them have really um, demeaning stories about being laughed at while they were harmed by American soldiers. And I find that I'm often in a position of being one of the first Americans people are talking to since the U.S. invasion and hearing their stories and their sense of, violation, I think, is certainly perpetuated by the way they were conveyed in the media as terrorists and people who deserve to be harmed.
0: Are they angry? Are they bitter? Are they forgiving and understanding and uh, aware of the subtle differences between individual people born in the United States and the US government, we we hear stories for decades of Americans who go to Vietnam and numerous other places that have been destroyed by the US military. And and it's all about how amazingly forgiving they are. Uh, Is is that your experience in Iraq? Yes, um, Iraqis, uh,
1: the population of adults in Iraq uh, know having lived under Saddam, that the people don't represent their government. Um, but they also know that we live in a democracy in which we do um, represent our government in a lot of ways and that we are responsible for reparations in Iraq. I think that sentiment is very clear. Um, I'm not sure that forgiveness is the route to is the route of the conversations I have. We're more interested in in reparations and repair that is not depoliticized. So If indeed the impact of something like burn pits is forever, then so too, I imagine the politics of repair should be forever complex. And
0: and is there an organized movement for reparations? Is there an effort in the Iraqi government to demand reparations? What can people outside of Iraq, uh, around the world, and in the United States in particular, do to advance that?
1: You know, in Iraq, uh, my experience is that people are trying to repair their bodies and their environment. There are grassroots campaigns for environmental regulation and cleanup, um, but they're relatively small. And beyond just environmental harm, of course, there's this growing body of evidence to suggest a strong case for reparations. But Iraqi people have also lived with ISIS and other occupiers since and before the United States. Being occupied is a condition that they're... um, they're used to in some ways. Internationally, there are groups like the Toxic Remnants of War, which is trying to ban specific weapons, and I really appreciate this effort. Of course, the project of war is what causes the irreparable damage, and we can't expect weapons that are meant to cause harm to just harm for less less of a length of time and, um, and have clean war or green militarism. Um, but uh, I am certainly supportive of the health justice campaign by US veterans to seek recourse for the harm done to them by exposure for burn pits, because any campaign to address the health effects on veterans can and should also include and address those of Iraqis who are exposed. Um, I also run a nonprofit organization, the Islam Reparations Project, which is for people who are seeking to give reparations to people that they feel they're complicit in harming. And that's generated some grassroots movements, but I don't see a major campaign right now.
0: And uh, we're speaking with Kali Rubai, who is in Fallujah. What are you doing now in Fallujah? What are you researching or, or working on?
1: Sure. My current research is on the incidence of birth defects, uh, mostly in Fallujah, which is the, one of the major concerns among families here in Anbar province. Iraqis are facing an increased rate of cancers and miscarriages and birth defects, and Fallujah has been described as the city with the highest rate of birth defects. So I was inspired by Dr. Samira Alani and her colleagues at the Fallujah Hospital, who started noticing a higher rate of birth defects and a higher diversity of birth defect types after the battles in 2004. And then I met with families who were actually able to line up their children if they had a big family and show me that children born before that date were healthy and children born after had myriad medical problems that were visible, let alone the ones I couldn't see Um, One way that uh, birth defects feature in Iraqi life is similar to how burn pits do in veteran life in the U.S., which is that it's a symbol or a powerful, visible indicator that something went wrong. So um, mostly I'm talking to people about their exposure histories, their medical histories, and their experience living with this uh, phenomenon in their community.
0: Do do parents and do the children themselves want their photos or videos uh, used to educate people? And if so, are you publishing those?
1: You know, it's funny you ask that because one of the greatest ethical mishaps that I encountered in back in 2014 was uh, not taking a picture of a line of children with birth defects. The mothers wanted their pictures taken, but because of my uh, research restrictions on ethical use of photos, I declined. And I regret that I didn't um, document what they were trying to show me better. But yes, there are. Um, there's a Facebook page uh, called Birth Defects in Fallujah. And there the hospital actually continues to post images of um, patients who are born with health problems that are likely linked to war, Um, but people are very eager to have their stories told, and many of the women who are living through this physical and emotional ordeal of having repeated miscarriages and stillbirths and giving birth to children who only survive a few days or weeks, um, as you can imagine, it has real social consequences, but real moral implications for them as well. Some have even asked that their children's deaths be counted in the body count that the US doesn't keep.
0: Yeah, bit of a problem there. Um, the the media at the moment is telling us that cluster bombs are being used by Russia, something that the United States uh, military would never do. Um, it hard to hard to seek justice or reparations or reconciliation uh, when the facts are erased. Uh, what what's the reality here, and how in the heck do we make people aware of it?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, there are a couple factors that are limiting research on public health in Iraq, and um, I really think that. Trying to, you know, journalists and researchers and scholars and activists and and photojournalists are all doing their best to to document what's happening. But of course, as with any major environmental disaster, which is what war is in Iraq, the longer you wait, the more factors come in and, and make it really difficult to prove causation. And there are definitely two major factors that have limited knowledge production at all in Iraq. The first is just the practical problem of warfare itself. And then the second is a lack of international political will. So the pragmatic boundaries are just that um, it's hard to maintain continuity of research and documentation because knowledge producing people, like people keeping records, and knowledge producing institutions like hospitals or academic institutions um, have been repeatedly destroyed by war. So for example, the Fallujah Women and Children's Hospital, which has been meticulously documenting the incidence of birth defects since the early 2000s, thanks to these incredible efforts by Dr. Alani, during ISIS occupation and the Iraqi government bombing, all the records before 2017 were destroyed and they were lost as the hospital was shelled and then the doctors fled for safety. This is devastating, not only because it produces the kind of epistemic violence it occludes people's truth and adds to plausible deniability. Um, But it also just makes it very difficult to continue doing research when you've, you know, these are doctors who've done a lot of work and then all of their work is destroyed. And that's in addition to the fact that it's just difficult to actually do research when there are so many more immediate health concerns like your physical safety. And then of course, internationally, there's just incredibly limited political will in centering Iraqi people. And that's evidenced, I think, by the way that the burn pit story has centered Americans and research focused on their health concerns. So of course, there have been excellent epidemiological studies on the long-term effects of war. And we know that the rate of cancer in Iraq is higher. Uh, The World Health Organization a decade ago released, oh, sorry, my power went up. Um, The World Health Organization a decade ago (laughs) released a report saying that probably depleted uranium was related to the increase of cancers and birth defects in Iraq. DU is a great example as a, a measure of harm because it's isolated to a war context. And for that reason, it's easier to understand how military activity is linked to cancer if you have a culprit like that, just one toxin. But of course, there were so many other toxic metals used in Iraq, lead, mercury, thorium, dioxin, and these are all substances that expose communities all over the world. Um, So we are wise, I think, to see those transnational connections and the possibility for mobilizing uh, across cause, not just in a war context. U.S. veterans, you know, communities living in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, Iraqis, all are facing the kind of health effects and all have a common interest in holding to account these corporations and governments who are willing to expose the population of the world to these known toxins all for the sake of profit. So it may behoove us actually to think uh, differently along the contours of our political will at both war and non-war context when we talk about toxification.
0: Uh, absolutely. Um, We're hearing lately that these wars are for something called the rule-based order. Uh, and I and we have the the International Criminal Court already investigating uh, certain elements of the of the Russian war making in Ukraine uh, despite Russia not being in Africa, the the site of every previous uh, international criminal court prosecution. W- what are the possibilities of of actually, using law uh, to go after crimes uh, in the context of, of Iraq?
1: I don't know. Um, there's certainly a lot of evidence that war crimes were committed, um, shelling hospitals. Um, the testimony of Iraqis today speaks to the, the numerous ways that the US military was complicit in a lot of, of human rights violations during the occupation and then of course, um uh, ecocide both during and after and ecocide is now eligible in, in the ICC for prosecution I am eager to see what is mobilized by the international community in the 20th anniversary which is coming up which the, sorry the 20th anniversary of the 2003 occupation of Iraq will be coming up next year and I imagine that we'll see lots of mobilization around this topic I don't know whether it will see uh see its day in court.
0: We've, uh, Kelly Rubai, we've got about two minutes left. There are still US troops in Baghdad, right? That the troops have not completely left or or ended this war yet, have they?
1: There are some, um, but I think what remains more powerful or more palpable in the lives of Iraqis is both the chemical saturation of war from even in the nineties, right? There are still tanks here from the nineties that have remained. And so long after human beings have left the material architecture and the material objects of war will continue to haunt Iraq's landscape and influence people's survivability and health. Um, So yes, there may be US soldiers here but the model of militarism that we have left behind in training other forces to take our place has certainly not left and I don't see it leaving anytime soon.
0: With uh, just a few seconds left, what can people do to help uh, spread the word, make others aware, uh, advance the the cause of of at least learning what's happened in Iraq?
1: That's a great question. Um, The Iraq archive project will have a website coming up soon. You can hear Iraqi stories. I think that finding your nearest Iraqi neighbor and everybody has one because we've all been uh, displaced at various stages of the diaspora. And really staying active in preventing the next war.
0: Very well said. We've been speaking with Kelly Rubai, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, researching the environmental health impacts of war. Kelly, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. Thank you. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia and syndicated by Pacifica Network There is no way to peace Peace is the way